If you have a brain, you have bias. So let's just own it. Some biases help us by simplifying our decision-making process. Other biases hold us back by impacting who gets hired and promoted, and even who we approach to be our friends. Welcome to Breaking the Bias, a podcast where we interview impact makers who are breaking the bias when it comes to inclusion and equity, because sharing our stories is how real belonging happens. Because in the past, what has happened is that when a woman gets hired or a person of color and they start to fail, people say, oh, well, they're failing because they're a woman. They're failing because they're a person of color. They don't say the same thing about a white man, right? And so we need to change the script. As we head into 2023 and economists are saying we're on the verge of a recession, the impact this will have on diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives remains to be seen. Yet companies can't afford to let DEI fall to the bottom of their priority list if they want to remain relevant and survive during an economic downturn and beyond. In today's conversation, Consciously Unbiased founder Ashish Kaushal sits down with Christopher Bylone, who was named one of this year's top 15 diversity champions by Diversity Global Magazine. They cover everything from the privilege Christopher has when he steps into the room as a white man and how he talks to other white men about DEI why DEI leaders have to be much more comfortable with data, and the DEI conversation leaders really need to be having in 2023. Now, on to their conversation. What types of pushback are you seeing when it comes to DEI? Well, I mean, just look at the news. You know, there's pushback coming from all aspects, right? Uh, You know, you don't just have employees who are grumbling about you know, what's going on in the diversity space, but you have lawmakers who are actually trying to legislate our profession out of existence. And so I think as DE&I professionals, we need to make sure that we're figuring out ways to make our work embedded throughout the organization, right? It's, it's, you can't have talent acquisition and the diverse talent acquisition, you know, in leadership development programs and then leadership development programs for name the group. Right. Yes, those programs are important. But what are you doing to make sure that your programs and your practices are equitable for all people, just as the way you do business? It shouldn't be an and. Right. It that's and I think that that and is where we're getting that pushback. And so we need to figure out how we are embedding it so that, you know, people who look like me. Okay, so if you're just listening on the podcast, I'm a white man. Right. I have a lot of privilege when I step into this space. And so for me, how do I talk to other white men about how they are just as important when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion? Yes, society has given them has given us a lot of privilege for many, many, many years. Right. However, it's on us to be part of the solution on how we're going to have a more equitable, diverse, and inclusive society in which we live. Absolutely. And I mean, I think I've always said that too. I don't, I don't think anyone has a monopoly on discrimination. And so if we all come to the party and, and make our impact, then that's the only way it changes, right? But if you start creating factions and you, you alienate the white male because you feel like they've had the advantage for the last X hundred years, well, now you're doing exactly what you're complaining about, right? And so you need to you need to be inclusive and, and let everyone help come to the solution together. What do you think are some of the underlying reasons for this pushback? I think it's uncertainty, right? When you think about, you know, the Maslow hierarchy of needs, 
you know, coming out of the pandemic, how many people lost jobs? You know, it, just look at this year with all of the crises that are happening around the globe. And, you know, what a financial expert is talking about, we're on the verge of a recession. And then they say, oh, well, guess what? We were wrong, you know, and now we're not. Or, you know, everybody is saying, what is the Fed going to do, taking a U.S. perspective? You know, how many jobs were created per month, right? So I think people are very much concerned about their financial well-being, right? And so when they're concerned about the financial well-being, they revert back to that lowest level in the Maslow hierarchy of needs, and it's just making sure that you're safe, right? Do you have the resources to survive, not live, survive, right? And so I think there is this thought that the more diverse we make our organization, the less opportunities there are going to be for people who may look like me. Mm -hmm. And we need to figure out how we're having an honest conversation about what diversifying our organization looks like what does it mean to be inclusive and how are we creating equitable policies and practices so that all people have access to the opportunities in which they want? And so what do you say when people say, well, then we're not hiring the best person for the job? Um, I call BS. (laughs) And no, it's true. It's true. I think one of the things that I I think uh, DE&I leaders, we have people talk about, oh, we need to, you know, it's about the kumbaya, right? How is everybody getting along? And what I say is we have to end the kumbaya. We need to be talking about real, honest conversations. And so historically, there have been B-level men hired and promoted over A-level women and people of color. So it's not about they're going to be less opportunities for white men, right? That's not it. Take uh, the Fortune 500, for example. There is only going to be 500 CEOs, right? So it's not about expanding the pie, right? There's only going to be 500 CEOs. As of today, there are six black CEOs in the Fortune 500 in 2022 at the time of this recording, right? And so... What we need to say is we need to say, look, white men, and I'm one of them, so I can talk to myself. (laughs) It's not about you not being hired or not being promoted because you're a white man. It is about that we're going after the absolute best candidate. Because I will tell you, whoever says you're, you're not you're making us not hire the best candidate. You're only making us hire the woman or the only person of color. That goes against everything we're talking about DE&I, right? It's your tokenism. It's actually disrespectful to the person that you're hiring. Who wants to be the diverse hire? Yeah. Right? We, right? Like, no, right? That, gives, that goes back to, like, that ruins everything about inclusion and about creating a place where people belong and can bring their whole authentic selves to work. And so what we need to say is that The B-level men, white men, who have gotten promoted and hired, and oh, by the way, probably got all the resources they needed to be successful when they started to fail, we're not going to hire B-level people anymore. 
Yeah. We're going to hire A-level people. And if the A-level person is a woman or a person of color or a person who has a disability, even better, right? And we're also going to make sure that those individuals also have all the resources they need to be successful because in the past, what has happened is that, you know, when a woman gets hired or a person of color and they start to fail, people say, oh, well, they're failing because of they're a woman. They're failing because they're a person of color. They don't say the same thing about a white man, right? And so we need to change the script yeah. and we need to be honest about what type of change we're trying to create. I mean, the McKinsey study that just came out in October of 2022 is showing that we are not making the advancements in gender equality that we need to make. It's been, what, 30 plus years that we've been talking about this in corporate America, and we're yeah. nowhere even closer to really breaking that glass ceiling. We got to do something different. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Yeah, that's why, that's kind of the reason actually you and I became friends is because you're, you're not like doing talk therapy or you're not doing diversity marketing. You're actually doing doing with the intent and action so it's actually getting delivered and providing ROI to the business, right? It's that you're, you're taking away from being a favor to being an advantage. We can't build the facade anymore, right? It can't, it, it, you have to go foundationally. Yeah. You have to think about what, you know, when the hurricane hits, what building is going to survive, Yeah. right? The one that has a strong foundation and the the internal structures are strong or the one that just looks pretty, right? And yeah. so we want both, right? But if you only focus on the sexy and you don't create the foundation, when things get rough, it's going to fall apart. Absolutely. So being a white male yourself, what's your response to the argument about reverse discrimination against white men? Hear my previous statement. <laughs> um, <laughs> but what I say is that, you know, we have to be honest with ourselves. We have lived in a society where white men have gotten an immense amount of privilege just because we were white men, right? And so we have to be part of the solution. It's not about reverse discrimination. It's about making sure that the society in which we are evolving is an equitable one and a place where everybody can bring their whole authentic selves to work. Because it's not just about white men. It's about heterosexual men, right, who are cisgender, right, so, and of able-bodied. Right, so we need to make sure that that our society is is giving equitable opportunity. Again, are you giving everybody a pair of shoes that fits? Yeah. So that's how I would push back against it. Right. It's it's not about reverse discrimination. It's about actually creating a society in which everybody has an equitable opportunity to advance. Completely. And in fact, that term doesn't even make sense. Like reverse discrimination and discrimination is discrimination, no matter who you do it with. And reverse discrimination is that, that just sounds like inclusion. Right. 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 And, and I mean, I mean, yes. Can a white man be discriminated against? Absolutely. Yep. Right? It, 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 there is, you know, 
there's a great musical out there that says everybody's a little bit racist, right? <laughs> um, it's the truth, right? Racism knows no color, right? Yep. You, you know, you can be a biased individual and kick every single diversity box that there could possibly be, right? So we all have to work on it. I have biases. You have biases. We have to own what biases we have and make sure that we're recognizing which ones are unconscious, right? And then making sure that when we are conscious about those biases, because I love the title of your organization, Consciously Unbiased, right? What are we doing to make sure that those biases don't have an adversarial impact on the organization or the the world around us. Yeah, absolutely. So the other thing I think, so 2023, I think one of the things that's really becoming blatantly obvious and clear is that we have to be comfortable looking and measuring our data, right? So can you tell me why do you think DEI leaders are uncomfortable measuring DEI data and how do we get to the place of comfortability? So it's getting beyond the fun. Right. If you think about, you know, D, good DEI programs are going beyond celebrating International Women's Day, Black History Month, Pride, International Persons with Disabilities, having ERGs. Right. Yes, every good diversity, diversity, equity, inclusion program needs to have those running very well. You also need to make sure that you're having equitable policies. And the way that you're going to make sure that those equitable policies are actually working is by knowing what the diversity is of your organization, right? And so if you're not uh, comfortable with Excel and you're a DEI leader, Microsoft Excel, go take a class. Yeah. Seriously. Like get familiar with some basic functions, right? VLOOKUPs, pivot tables, right? How to make a graph because... When you're presenting on, you know, if you're trying to say to the organization, our organization isn't diverse enough, you need to come with the numbers. What are the numbers? Mm -hmm. And where's your diversity problem, right? So getting comfortable with the data, in a previous organization, we were able to determine that the reason why we were not seeing more women advance into levels of executive leadership in our organization it was because it wasn't about how are we advancing when they're in those senior leadership roles, right? Mm -hmm. It was looking at saying the problem is going from junior management to that first rung of senior management. That's actually where the speed bump was, right? Oh, Once they got over that hump and got into that, what we would consider to be the senior leadership of the organization, the data showed us that a woman had the same likelihood of being promoted as the man. But when you had 50% women in junior management, but you were only promoting 30% women, you're cutting off your own feet, right? And the only way that we were able to figure that out was to get comfortable with data. Really understand and say, okay, what is this data telling us? Where is the problems happening? Understanding the movements, looking at the hires, the levers, the promotions, and how does all of that noise, right, impact the actual numbers in which we have when it comes to diversity? And if looking at a spreadsheet scares you, 
then you're not going to be able to get intimately involved because probably the people who are in your HRIS team don't know what you're looking for and say they don't know how to cut the data. So you need to get really comfortable being your own data analyst. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're privileged to hire your own data analyst and you can train them on what to look for, do it, right? I did that in my last role. One of the things I did is I created a role for a DEI data analyst. Love it. Because I knew that was something I, I needed to continue to grow the program if we were going to advance. Yeah. No, you say objectively validated or invalidated assumptions that people made around diversity, right? right. It's really smart. I think, I think that's brilliant. So before we can do that, we have to get people to self identify to quantify inclusion. So how did you encourage that and make people feel safe about doing that? So I'll give you a really great example. So back in summer of 2020, which we all know what was happening at that moment in time, we were running a, a, a global gender equality certification. And we were just starting the concept of self-identification in our organization. And so what we decided to do was pilot an anonymous self-ID component in the United States. And we looked at all the different, you know, race, gender identity, gender expression, sexual orientation, veteran status, parental status, age, disability. And we asked people to self-identify anonymously. We got that data back. And something was really interesting to me. When I looked at the response rates of choose not to identify, we had more people saying, I choose not to identify in the race and ethnicity category than we did in disability, sexual orientation, and are you a transgender individual? So then when we looked in deeper, what we saw was, so we also have our EEO reporting, right, that we do in the United States. So we have some baseline data in which we know. What we saw was that our white, our Asian, and our Hispanic populations were answering, were identifying at the same rate as which we knew from our EEO reporting. However, we saw a complete nosedive in our Black population. If I took the percentage of people who identified as Black and said, I choose not to identify in our race and ethnicity category, would equaled what we knew to be Black representation from our EEO report. So this told me that Black employees did not feel included enough to self-identify, mm-hmm. even in an anonymous way. And you know what? They had every right not to feel included, right? So to me, so, so self-identification is so important because the higher participation rates you have just in general, mm-hmm. and the lower percentage of individuals choosing, I choose not to identify, right? If they're, if they're that lower rate, if they're identifying with, you know, I'm a male, I'm a female, or, you know, not choosing to identify, or I'm, you know, the lower your rate is of I choose not to identify, the higher your inclusion rate is. Because what that shows is that people feel included enough to identify who they are. Now, that doesn't mean your policies and practices are perfect, 
right? You have a lot of work to do, but they feel they trust you enough. They feel included enough to identify in a system that then you can start using those numbers to help figure out where do you have hotspots uh, or where are you having really good successes that you can model the way from. Yeah. Yeah. So you basically take those, the data and the, the assumptions and you kind of build policies around that to make sure that behavioral change happens so that people feel welcome, right? If that group yes. doesn't feel welcome. Um, what are some other ways that companies can measure inclusion and behavior change? So I think it's really around are you looking at uptake of policy, right? So if you roll out a good global parental, a global parental leave policy or just a parental leave policy, even if you're not a global organization, mm-hmm. are men taking that parental leave policy just as much as women, mm-hmm. right? How are you tracking that rate? Are you seeing a good take up of accommodation requests? Right? Are people feeling like they can come forward and say, I needed accommodation to do my job? Yeah. Right? Because people with disabilities do not have to have disabilities that, you know, cause them to be in a wheelchair or have other mobility issues or that they, you know, they're completely deaf or they're completely blind, right? They may need other accommodations. There's a lot of disabilities that are invisible. And so are they feeling like they are, that your organization is welcoming of, of people with disabilities that they're willing to request accommodations and track it, right? Track those numbers because that's telling you when folks feel comfortable in identifying, right? It's not just about self-identification. This is now coming forward and saying, I have a disability and I need you to provide an accommodation for me. So those are other ways that you can you can track inclusion. Um, yeah. I also think there's a lot of external organizations out there like Disability In, the Human Rights Campaign, Ed Strategy that have really good certification indexes that you can use as an organization to help understand where you are from a policy and practice point of view to ensure that at least from a policy and practice point of view, you're creating the environment to be inclusive. And then you just got to make sure that they're being effective as you go forward. Absolutely. I also think there's other two other things you could do. One is measure your retention rate and see if that's increased, right? Because if people are not yes. leaving and they're feeling included, and then the second thing is maybe a simple survey that just says, hey, would you recommend somebody to work here? Very, very much so, because I think if, if people say, you know, yes, come work here, and, you're, and you are marrying that data to self-identification data, then you're really going to understand who is recommending your organization to other folks that look like them. Yep, absolutely. So what's your definition of an inclusive colleague in your last organization? So what we said was an inclusive colleague is somebody that is committed to fostering an inclusive, unbiased culture that unleashes every individual's unique potential. And, you know, for me, that really is key is that, you know, we need to allow every individual to be their whole authentic selves at work, Um, no matter who they are. uh, That's really what it comes down to. Absolutely. And then what are some policies that companies need to implement to embed DEI in the organization? Yeah, so this is um, earlier when I talked about, you know, not having the and, right? Yeah. You know, talent acquisition and, right? Where are you going to recruit from? 
right? What are your recruitment policies? How are you sourcing new candidates? When you're looking at your talent acquisition strategy, how is that promoting an inclusive process, right? How are you making sure that you're through the resume review and the first round of interviews? When you're looking at your promotions and your policies, how are you doing integrated talent reviews in order to make sure that it's producing results to help diversify the organization? Also making sure that you're you know, building policies that are universal for folks, right? So when you're thinking about redoing an office space, okay, so how are you making sure that is accessible for everyone? You know, yeah. uh, you know, making sure you're using the desks that can elevate on their own, right? You know, well, that's going to help you with if somebody's in a wheelchair or somebody who just wants to stand, right? You know, that's a universal design approach that's going to help everybody. And then it's not, you're not needing to get a new desk because somebody needs an accommodation. It's just they roll up to the desk and they've been like, okay, I just need to adjust the height. And then it's the same. It doesn't matter what desk they, you know, approach in the office space. Every desk can accommodate them. Those are the type of things you need to be thinking about universal design in every aspect of your policies. I love it. We tend to make things more complicated than we need to. Yes. <laughs> that we need to do to make people feel included. Here's a, a, a tongue twister for me, at least. What are your thoughts on how conscious and neuroplasticity affects our ability as adults to be inclusive? Oh, yeah. You you sent me that question ahead of time. So thank you, because <laughs> uh, I had to do some thinking about that. So, you know, what I think about is neuroplasticity. Now, I'm, uh, I am no neuroscientist by any stretch of the imagination. So using what I have read, it's about making sure that your brain can still learn new things, right? And so I think this is why adults struggle to learn a new language. Mm-hmm. Right. The, the, I mean, the science is out there that, you know, it's very hard for adults to learn a new language just because your brain is not malleable. Right. It's, it's so first what we need to do is we need to make sure that we're teaching inclusion from like kindergarten. Right. So yeah. we need to make sure that these laws that are being passed get reversed so that we can actually talk about being inclusive. Right. You know, and the the wrongs that society has done in the past. I mean, Germany gets it right. You know, they teach about the Holocaust from day one, right? Because they don't want to repeat it, right? Right. So we need to make sure that every society in which have done wrong is teaching the current society about the evils of the past, right? Mm -hmm. But I think what it needs to do is we need to make sure that it's a continuing lifelong learning. We have to make it interesting. We have to make sure that people want to continue to learn so that those synapses keep firing, right? And you know that age-old adage of you can't teach an old dog new tricks? Mm-hmm. I think we got to throw that out the window, right? Because I do think that you can, when you start firing those synapses again, people want to learn. And so for me is we have to keep, this goes beyond just diversity, equity, inclusion work, right? This goes into how does our society think about lifelong learning. Absolutely. And and so for me, it's, you know, I can remember my grandmother playing crossword puzzles, right? And, you know, when I was younger, I would say to her, like, why are you playing crossword puzzles? And she's like, because I need to keep my brain busy. Mm-hmm. 
right? You know, there's a lot of new research out there with Alzheimer's patients that the, you know, the more they can keep their brain busy, right? The rapid onset of Alzheimer's can be a little bit delayed, right? Because their brain isn't slowing down, right? So you're, so what you need to do is you need to make sure that we're pushing through that, you know, so that we keep our brain malleable and wanting to continue to learn. I love that. Well said. I, I, you know, it's funny. I thought of that question yesterday. I was like, because I was thinking about new training we should put through. And I think part of what you said, the neural pathways and teaching a dog, new old dog, new tricks, we've taught ourselves that that's the path to take that we're not, we're stubborn and we can't learn. Right? And we got to reprogram that pathway and say, okay, let's bring back the curiosity and realize that life's only worth living if we're learning. I mean, how how many stories do you hear out uh, out there about you know somebody coming out to their grandparents and their grandparents actually get it better than probably some of their friends or their parents do, right? Or you know when they come out to an older person, you know, or, or share something, and then all of a sudden, you know, a birthday present shows up and it's a pride flag, right? <laughs> you know, um, you know, you know. So don't. What I would say is don't count older people out. Absolutely. Also, because they have a lot of stories to share. Yeah. Right. If you think about what are we teaching about now? Right. We're teaching about the civil rights movement. Well, go and get some people who were on the front lines of the civil rights movement talking about civil rights. 100%. You know, don't think you have to do all the teaching yourselves. Go, go get the people who were on the front lines. They're going to be able to make the story so much more real and they're going to be able to connect with folks and deliver a, uh, you know, deliver the message in a way that you couldn't personally deliver yourself. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, it's funny. I think the other thing you hit upon there is like giving people a lot more credit than they, that you put in your head that they have. Right. And so I guess I'm not saying that right, but I'll give you an example. So one of my friends was really stressing about, he told me a story many years later, he was really stressing about coming out to his parents and so like he's stressing about it for like a year and didn't tell them and finally called them from London when he was at school. And it was at midnight, her, the, his mom's time in the US. And so she got scared because he's calling so late. So she's like, why are you calling me so late? Is everything okay? And she's like, he's like, mom, I gotta tell you, I'm coming out, I'm gay. And she's like, you woke me up for that and hung up on him and said, call me in the morning. <laughs> she didn't care, you know? But he's put himself in this stressful situation and a cyclist are running through for a year. With, she really was accepting of it. Didn't really give a shit. <laughs> Did change anything. Right. Well, and, and, and it's you know, it, 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 even the reverse, right? We we think about that. You know, sometimes when we look at our own kids, that they're not prepared for a conversation. Yep. Right. They're not old enough to be able to talk about this topic. Yes, they are. Yeah. Right. You know, if children are old enough to be bullied about who they are, they're old enough to have a conversation about inclusion. Right now, age appropriate, yeah. right? Definitely age appropriate. But th- this is how we talk about it. And you know, sometimes the kids are smarter than us. I'm amazed at my kids. Oh dear lord! Sometimes they like <laughs> they come up with things that I'm like, "Who are you? And is are you that my same child?" Right? Um, yeah. And so you know, some sometimes you're not smarter than a fifth grader. Sometimes they're smarter than you. So you need to learn from them. Absolutely. This is very enlightening. I'm really glad we did this. We have to do this again. I'm going to end this with um, 
we talk, I think I've talked to you about this before. We have this thing called microprogressions of consciously and bias, and the small action steps that we can take to make life better for each other. Um, what's one small action step or microprogression that leaders at all levels can take to build belonging at work? I've been thinking about this one. And so I think it's about people in positions of power have to be vulnerable. It is okay to say, I don't know, right? Or I don't know the answer. Be vulnerable, be honest, right? You don't have to know the answer. You just have to know where to go look, right? And so for me, that's a small step because we're in a society now that people think that they need to know all the answers right away. And no, there's so many people out there that are going to help you. So just ask for help, right? You know, also it is okay in private to say, you know, I have this bias, right? I would like help to figure that out, right? And that's how I view my job, right? When I, you know, when I look at what I do internally in organizations, I want to be a safe space for folks. I want yeah. somebody to be able to come to me and say, Christopher, you know, just the way I grew up, I believe this. But I understand what you're saying and what the organization is saying, and this is the type of culture. And I want to stay here. I want to, I want to be part of this journey that we're on. Can you help me? Yes. Right? Like, yeah. absolutely. So just ask for help. Be vulnerable. I love it. Thank you so much. This is so enlightening and I'm looking forward to doing this again and working together on other projects. Absolutely. I, I, I always love these conversations and Ash, I really appreciate the work you're all doing. Uh, the work that Consciously Unbiased has done over the last several years has really elevated the conversation, has really brought some things to the table that I don't think people were talking about. And so really value the work that you're doing and um, thank you for bringing me part of the conversation. Oh, it's my honor. And if people want to reach out to you, how did they get to you? That's my last question. Uh, go on LinkedIn. That's where you can find me. Uh, you can search up Christopher Bylone Van Sandvik on LinkedIn and you can find me. Please connect with me. That's the best way to get a hold of me. Okay. Thank you so much. You're welcome. You can learn more about our guests and get show notes at consciouslyunbiased.com slash listen. And we want to hear from you. Please subscribe and rate Breaking the Bias on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to our podcasts. And drop us a note to let us know if there's a topic you really want to hear about or a guest you want to have on the show. Thanks for listening to Breaking the Bias. <laughs>